welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX, 98.3 FM, Canberra Community Radio. Uh, my name's Eleanor and uh, we've got an exciting show for you today. We've got some very interesting people sitting in the in the chairs opposite me. Uh, we've got a Fuzzy Logic, well, he, he's, he is Fuzzy Logic. We've got Rod Taylor in the studio. And good morning, Eleanor. We're going to be talking chemistry this morning. We are. We're, we're very lucky to have uh, joining us the ACT Scientist of the Year, uh, the inaugural ACT Scientist of the Year, actually, um, Associate Professor Colin Jackson from the Research School of Chemistry at the ANU. Hi, Eleanor. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. We've We've kind of been, we've had coffee this morning and we've chatted a bit about the sorts of chemistries that your research group looks at. And I must say that your research group is one of the finest um, and best-looking research groups uh, that the ANU's probably ever seen. Uh, I am a little bit biased because I must reveal I am in that research group. Uh, and that's why Rod's here today, because he's going to be asking the questions that perhaps I wouldn't uh, think to ask because I'm just part of the furniture in, in all of this. <laughs> Oh, I don't know, uh, Eleanor, you, you've got pretty good credentials yourself in your own <laughs> knowledge. But uh, yes, today we're talking chemistry and I've got a really, really naive question. I warned Colin before we went live that I was going to ask him this question. I actually didn't say that it was specifically this no, question. No, no, there's been a lot of build-up. I'm quite excited. <laughs> but I, I like the naive question because often they're the most revealing, right? And this one, Colin, is what is a chemical? There's blank faces. Um, <laughs> I, I guess a chemical is a is is. Gee, I don't know. A molecule. So so basically, most chemicals that we work with are, are molecules of some of some form. But everything we see around us is a chemical of some form or other, is it not? Well, I think of it as physics is kind of the study of the forces that hold the molecules together yeah. chemistry would be the study of the molecules and biology would be how these molecules are involved in life that's probably the the, the way i kind of conceptualize it but is, is a chemical just a compound or it's a mix or it's say two elements or more bonded together in some way so it could be paint there probably is an answer to that which if i was a high school teacher i could probably tell you but i i I never really think about it. I, I did say it would be a naive question. <laughs> no. I'm sure Google could help you out. If you really want to know what a chemical is, I'd just Google it. All right. Well, how, how do you think about chemicals then? I mean, do you have like a, a, a visualization when you, when you say talk about something hydroxonase to make it in better, a nonsensical word there? Do you visualize things floating in space? little atoms joined together in some way yeah well most of the chemicals we look at we look at it at an atomic level at a molecular level so we can see you know I, I you know you picture how the atoms are arranged in three dimensions and there's so a single molecule comprised of several atoms arranged you know in, in a three-dimensional shape so, so they could be very big like some proteins are, are very very large or they could be very small and there's like all hydrogen. sorts of complicated rules about how you can mix them together, how they interact with each other. Yeah, molecular interactions is, is really what most chemistry is actually about. So it's, it's, it's really about how different molecules come together and interact and whether they form something that's interesting or whether they undergo a chemical reaction. It's, it's the interaction aspect of it that, that most people are, are interested in that, that do So what, what's, the, what's the first chemical that you remember? We, we, we actually became aware there's a thing called a chemical. I don't know, I guess you get told about oxygen pretty early on in life. Yeah. Most kids know what oxygen is. Yeah, I feel they like that's... They breathe oxygen. That's kind of probably the most, probably the first one that people really kind of uh, pick up on. Were you, were you like me? My parents gave me a science chemical chemistry kit for my birthday. It was a box of all random sorts of stuff. I'm not sure it entirely passed the safety requirements, but I guess... Probably wasn't too bad. I, I, I survived. <laughs> but was there something similar in your past and your childhood, or that, what that I have, got you really uh, inspired I, and interested? I, I probably, but I had a lot of books. I read a lot of books and things, and, and I was always interested in, in, in the, and used to be able to get these books. I mean, you probably don't. I, you, you know, you can probably still get them. I guess the internet's kind of superseded a lot of it, but they were kind of how this works type books, and you could kind of read, and there'd be a page on on how this works or how that works. And these are always the kind of things that I like to kind of read. 
and, and I always I always wanted to know how stuff worked. Yeah, I that's, guess that that's, that's kind of a common common trait amongst most scientists. So I broke a lot of things when I was little. <laughs> I think scientists read the how stuff works books, and engineers buy Lego sets and dismantle things. Mm. My my parents were probably a little bit, I don't know, psychic. They they got me a microscope set when I was you know barely able to stand up, and I don't think I've used a microscope for all of my undergrad schooling and then suddenly I'm doing crystallography <coughs> and I spend a lot of time with, with a microscope so I, gave, I feel I well prepared for that. Too. <laughs> I'm kind of like a, a better, scientific mum and dad. A better microscope too. Yeah, I, I had a microscope too. I don't, I don't think I ever did anything interesting particularly with it other than look at maybe squashed ants. Yeah, yeah, squashed bugs. That's Onion, a good one. Onions are always good under microscopes. You can see the, the cell Yeah, walls I can never get them in focus and always trying to hunt around on the slide to find the thing that I was interested in. But now is there, there's a rite of passage that a chemist has to go through where you've got to blow something up. <laughs> and uh, in fact, a friend of mine, he uh, took the ends of his fingers off uh, in a chemistry lab Oh, really? Have you had a similar sort of experience? <sighs> We're not really blow things up type of chemists. We're kind of biological chemists, so most biology doesn't explode unless you've done something really, really, really wrong. So <laughs> we are... No, we, we, I've defrosted stuff by accident. <laughs> it's not I quite was, as explosive. In my, under, in my undergrad, I was very hungover one morning and decided to come in and turn the experiment off at the wall, but I accidentally turned off the whole, um, the whole fridge, freezer. So it was probably my biggest stuff up <laughs> <laughs> but at some point then in your development you realize you could do things with these chemicals that there are actual problems you could solve is that right yeah i think i think that's something that you understand before you even start university i mean i think the reason most people do science at university is because they're interested in interested in and hopefully you know at some stage doing something useful with what they learn so that could be you know looking at disease or, or health or, or um, industry and engineering. So is, it, is there a particular theme or a particular sort of use or problem solving that, that attracted you or, or still attracts you to chemistry? I've always been interested in, in, like I said, the molecular kind of basis of, of how things work and, and I've always kind of been interested in life and biology, bio, biochemistry. So that's, I guess, that's kind of where, where I was looking. So... I did first year medicine and then realized pretty quickly that I have issues kind of keeping track of things <laughs> and I thought I'm probably not that well suited being a doctor because I'd leave forceps in somebody probably <laughs> pretty quickly. Um, so if I work with um, bacteria and stuff, if I kill them, no one's going to complain. So it's much safer for everybody uh, for me to go into research than, than, than medicine. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, now the basic laws of chemistry, I think, and tell me if you if I'm wrong, uh, have been understood for quite a long time. That like the rules of how one thing bonds to another is that is that true? How much do we really know, and how much is left yeah, unknown about the basics of chemistry? Chemistry is a more mature science than, say, biology. I think that's a fair thing to say. I think we understand quite a lot about chemistry but there's still there's still you know subtleties that we don't understand very well but relative to some other kind of fields sure chemistry is is a relatively mature science that we do understand right. some aspects of it very well yeah so is it then the, the the main frontier for chemistry is how it can be used and how it can be developed in different ways yeah i mean it's it, i mean this is one of these things you could ask 10 different chemists and, and they'd probably give you 10 different answers but there is well actually the, the the some of the most interesting kind of areas in, in chemical research are at the interfaces between chemistry which is like i said quite well understood and fairly mature um science and some of the other sciences so between chemistry and biology how we can use chemistry to manipulate biology or understand biology better this is an area kind of newish area called chemical biology um chemistry is obviously uh intricately involved in, in most material sciences so making these cool new materials that people mm -hmm. want you know you've, you've got a smartphone and you're pressing buttons and, and everything seems to work like magic off a glass screen I mean this is because we've got things like organic LEDs in yeah exactly and, and, and so self-healing polymers and and so the materials side of things is, is another area where chemistry is really quite directly involved and is, is extremely exciting 
so Eleanor, we're on uh, Twitter. If people want to tweet us during the program, we are Rod. So if you are a Twitter type person, uh, get online, and our handle is at Fuzzy Logic Sci. That's uh, fuzzy logic, all one word, and then the first half of science, SCI, or scintillating, or I don't know, I can't think, scissors. <laughs> fuzzy logic sci on Twitter. Um, send us your comments and questions. Uh, we're, we're very excited to have just cracked 100 followers, which is pretty exciting. So. Which we've only had it for a week, so that's a good guy. So, yes, so if you've got any questions that you'd like us to uh, send to our guest here, or maybe for Eleanor or myself, shoot them through our Twitter handle. Uh, now, I want to tell you a little bit about a chemistry experience I had this morning because, uh, you know, I'm f- fiddling around at home, filling a bit of time before we come on the radio. What am I going to do? I know. I go out to the shed that I've just built out in the backyard, right? So I put these pavers down and we put sand in the cracks between the pavers. And guess what? Ants love sand in the cracks between pavers. <laughs> and, the f- and it's only been up for a couple of weeks and already there is an ant's nest in the middle of my new shed so boss lady says to me she says really cool thing you can do is you can put uh, little granules of an ant insecticide down in the gaps and uh, the ants don't have a happy experience in your shed and they go away (laughs) so i'm spraying this stuff around and i've uh, put it in the cracks and i'm tidying up i've got a little brush and then i realize i'm inhaling a cloud of this stuff and i'm thinking Okay, it's got a slight odour. It could be the sand and the other dust, but I wonder what this thing is. And I read the label, and uh, perhaps, Colin, you can read it because you're a chemist. <laughs> you're familiar with this stuff. Yeah, chlorpyrifos is the active ingredient, probably. What was the... Um, do you remember what the brand name of the stuff you were using was? Uh, yes, I don't remember. Actually, it's on my phone. I'll, I'll look it up in a second. Okay. Yeah, chlorpyrifos is, is the active ingredient, and that would be an organophosphate phosphate molecule so it's got a phosphorus atom in the middle and some okay. carbons and oxygens around it it's right so what was i doing that oh this is called antex that's it there antex okay yep nice yep. called pyrophos is the is the active ingredient. active ingredient and there's lots of warnings and stuff like that so now was i being a bit foolish by spraying this stuff around and inhaling it um so what, what, what were the warnings? Oh, <laughs> did, did you follow the warnings? <laughs> the instructions are there for a reason, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to like put a judgment on whether you're foolish or not. <laughs> are you being too tactful? Like, <laughs> are you being too tactful, Colin? Uh, look, if, if, I mean, what I'd say with, with most chemicals is that if there's warnings on the label, then I'd, I'd follow the warnings. I wouldn't um, sit there with a bottle of chlorpyrifos and, and inhale it. Um, but, you know, if, 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 you're, if you've used reasonable... Um, yeah, let's, let's, reasonable I'm just going to read. Measures. I'm just going to read the warnings on the label. It says, okay. "Do not spray around your shed, then brush and inhale." <laughs> okay, but uh, you were telling me before the show this is a class of chemicals that actually has a, a, a much more serious uh, overtone to it. So it, it is. Um, it's not. It, I mean, it's. So what it is? It's a chemical that's designed to kill things. Um, and there's not as much difference between insect biology and human biology as people would probably think. So the way this molecule works is it inhibits an enzyme in the brain called uh, acetylcholinesterase. And so in the brain, nerve signal transmission requires uh, chemical neurotransmitters. And one of these transmitters is called acetylcholine. And then acetylcholinesterase is an enzyme. So an enzyme is a protein. So it's a bigger molecule, but it's a protein that our bodies make um, and this protein, which is an enzyme, which means it catalyzes a reaction, will break down the neurotransmitter. And by breaking down this neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, it turns a signal off. And that's what a signal is. A, a, a traffic light, if it didn't have a, a red light and it was always green, it wouldn't be a traffic light, it would be a green light, right? So the thing about a signal is that a signal needs to be able to be turned on and off. So the way our bodies turn the signal off is by breaking down the the um, neurotransmitter acetylcholine with this enzyme acetylcholinesterase. So what organophosphates like chlorpyrifos do is that they will bind to the enzyme acetylcholinesterase and inhibit it or stop it working and then you can't turn the signal off. So ah. then you get in 
So what happens is basically paralysis and death. Uh, okay, so if I can sort of summarise it in simplistic terms, what you just told me is that there's uh, chemicals, messages going around from yep. one part of the brain to another, and there's another mechanism that controls that that flow of messages. Yep, that turns it off, yep. and then this molecule will stop that. It, this interferes with that. Now you said that, uh, now we don't want to make comments about the, the specific product, but uh, it's in a class of drugs similar to sarin gas, I think you were saying. Yeah, so this is, it's, it's nowhere near as toxic as sarin gas or VX gas, but they're similar chemicals. Right. So, 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 so this, is, this is what I mean. This is the reason you have to be um, careful with all chemicals is, is that if something is designed to kill an insect, um, our biology and insect biology is actually fairly similar. So there's slight differences that make this compound not very toxic to humans, but very toxic to insects. All right. Well, an ant is much smaller than I am too. So and the, and is the, the the dose effect too. So yeah. if I really mainlined it, I, I could be in trouble. But just uh, a small dose is probably going to have no real in, impact. I yeah, think is right. absolutely. Yeah, um, and the other thing that uh, strikes me is you can have a long-term effect. So you can have an immediate effect of something, or you can have an accumulative effect. So something like this, does it? How long does it last? Um, if I'm ingesting it in some way. Look, the the research around long term effects of of insecticides is, is kind of pretty vague. Um, it's it's hard to. There's no obvious. I mean, you know, there's. It's a very. Comp, I should. You know. I mean, it's a very very complex area. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Is it com complicated more because, like, this morning I had a single exposure and that's just like a one-off, but in other cases you might have an ongoing exposure that you're getting repeated uh, exposures to it and then that would affect the, the, the long-term impact? It, it's, more that, it's more that there's no really clear-cut trend. It, it's hard to say if, if, it, if they do have an effect or if they don't have an effect. Right. Um, Certainly... Some, in in places like um, Far East Asia, they're trying to conduct these big, like large scale epi epidemiological studies on exactly that question. But they're all sort of it's quite early on because it's a question that people have only started asking recently, and they need to study it over a very long period of time to spot any of those sorts of trends in a big population. So it's still a question that is in the process of being asked and answered. And it's um, incredibly complex. I mean, you yeah. can't work out why someone is. Well, it's very, very hard to work out why someone has become sick thirty years later. Oh, cause when, and effect. You know, yeah. they've they've done you know two hundred thousand different things in the last thirty years. So, which has contributed to it? it right. I mean, it's it's a very difficult area of science, and it's an important area of science, but it's not something I can really comment on. Oh, look, I'd like to um, come back to this question, and I think you've got some music you want to play. Yeah, yeah, we've got a, a song queued up, and I think Colin will be pleased because he's gone ahead and picked all the tunes so well when, when we come back from the song uh i'd like to talk about the public's attitude to risk what perceived risk and the mo an email that i got last night about mobile phone hazards <laughs> so here on fuzzy logic we are yep we're about to hear some sparkle horse on fuzzy logic uh so stick with us with colin jackson from the research school of chemistry and rod taylor That was Maria's Little Elbows by Sparkle Horse. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. My name's Eleanor, and I'm in the studio with our fearless leader of Fuzzy, Rod, and with Associate Professor Colin Jackson, who's visiting us from the Research School of Chemistry at the Australian National University. We've been talking about chemicals, uh, what they're made of, what they do, uh, whether Rod's going to gas himself in his shed trying to kill ants. Um, I think we've decided that maybe he should be a little bit more careful with his dustpan and brush when he's playing around with chlorpyrifos. Uh, but hey, chemicals aren't really that much to panic about because everything that you eat, drink, breathe, all the people that you love are made of chemicals. Uh, so we're going to chat a bit about, I think, how the public perceive chemicals, Rod. Yes, and, and uh, you said fearless. Actually, I'm, I'm fearful. But I think <laughs> once the, the, the funny skin colouring comes back after my exposure to the uh, ant rid this morning, then uh, I'll probably be okay. But uh, I want to talk about 
uh, an email I got last night and it was saying mobile phones are dangerous, you know, don't carry them in your pocket and here's a picture of a person who's got brain cancer and they used a mobile phone. And I'm thinking, well, you know, what's the risk really here? I don't think that one has really been proven at all. And the the, the public attitude to risk, as you're suggesting, um, Eleanor, a chemical, if it's a chemical, it must be dangerous, right? And have you probably heard that one about dihydrogen monoxide, you know, and mm-hmm. you make it in the lab and you give it to somebody and you say, will you drink this beaker? I just made it in the lab. And therefore... It's, it's dangerous. Is, is that an attitude, like a, a common angst that you find amongst people, Colin, about chemicals? Um, it's not, not people I encounter very often, but um, you see it on the internet, I guess. I guess one thing with the internet is it's kind of democratized opinions, which is interesting because basically everyone can, you know, broadcast their opinion, whereas back in the day, you know, it wasn't always the case so there's a lot of good aspects of that but also kind of concerning aspects related to people kind of fear-mongering around so informed and uninformed opinions. Yeah, yeah yeah i think informed opinions are important to be heard but uninformed opinions are, are probably uh, a little bit dangerous sometimes so this relates to the whole anti-vaccination movement too well let's, let's talk about the role of science here how do we handle this well it's it's important you know that 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 you know, we do our job in terms of communicating what we're doing and explain to people clearly what our research is and, and why we're doing it. Um, and it's important. I think the biggest the biggest issue is, is perspective in a lot of these things. Uh, there's, there are very real um, threats to, to health. I mean, and, and largely related to diet. I mean, so... You know, you, there's no point worrying about um, traces of chemical residues in your, you know, can of Coke because the can of Coke's going to be a lot worse than the trace of chemical. If you're drinking, you know, five cans of Coke a day, so you know, or smoking a cigarette, there's there are things that 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 are quite clearly bad for us, and, and there are things that that are that are um, very hard to tell whether they're bad for us or not. So there's things to be alarmed about. And things that that you know should be a bit yeah. further down the list. Is it analogous? just just a, a bit of balance? I think in, in a lot of yeah. these, some some of it's a little bit. Um, Is it analogous to the air, air crash situation where you know two hundred passengers die in an airplane crash, but you're at far greater risk driving to the airport than you are on an airplane? Is it well like we don't our human perception of risk isn't all that good? Yeah, yeah. I, I think things that we can connect to emotionally. Um, are things that we tend to get worked up about. Whereas other things we tend to kind of, um, we're quite good at overlooking deliberately or, or not. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and things like chemicals, I mean, so there's, there's a lot of people that kind of anti-pesticides and anti-insecticides and we shouldn't be using this. But the reality is, you know, it, food's very cheap partly because of this. Right, and we have to feed seven billion people on Earth. So, mm. you know, if, if if you have a better um, idea for how to feed seven billion people reliably without using chemicals, then you know, feel free to put that forward. But it's they've they've improved our living standards markedly, and, and our lifespans are longer than they've ever been. So, you know, a bit of perspective is is important. Okay, so we should look at the benefits and not just yeah, absolutely the risks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, hey, I mean, you look at what happens socially when food prices go up. You know, it leads to very serious social um, effects. I think yeah, one of yeah. one of the interesting things that you just brought up there um, in passing, Colin, is this idea of scientists having a responsibility to communicate what they're doing. So, you know, why are we spraying crops with pesticides? What is the the purpose of that? And it was actually only last week that chief scientist uh, of Australia, Ian Chubb came out and made a statement to the effect of scientists need to be taking more responsibility to explain their research to the public, especially in light of genetically modified organisms. So the big GMO scares um, that kind of are the the new anti-vax, you know, this this big sort of pool of misinformation. And, And the chief scientist has said at the end of last week that he feels that that responsibility should fall on scientists. Uh, do you think that that's 
uh, kind of the correct balance there that, that there needs to be more effort from the scientific community to pass that information on or do you think the public needs to be more receptive a bit of both oh yeah i think a bit of both i think there's an important role for science communicators right so scientists often aren't the best people at communicating what they're doing and it's just a <laughs> unfortunate reality of of a lot of people that are in science and myself included so often scientists you know the, the other thing is, is, is that all science is, is, is pretty well-intentioned, okay? Mm. So, so no one's going to be involved in some conspiracy to make some toxic chemical and poison the whole world. No one's, you know, people are doing this um, for, for, for almost, you know, entirely good reasons. So, so people are, are doing it to try to help people. Um, scientists aren't always the most eloquent speakers and are always great at, at communicating things and I think there's a growing kind of need for science communicators to kind of fill that breach between the public and the scientists because clearly in some areas there is a breakdown and in, in, in what people are doing in, in science isn't getting through to, to some not all not all the public either I mean you've, you've got a you've got a, a discrepancy between people a small minority that are very vocal and and the rest of the public so it's just important to try to educate people and make sure that that everything's kind of understood well eleanor a couple of weeks ago on fuzzy logic we were discussing extinction and you were talking about the role of scientists and i'm thinking it's a lot to lay on the poor scientists you know really we have a lot to do we've well, got so much to get through well you, you you've got to you know work out the complicated mechanics all the logic all the principle all the publishing all the funding and colin you're you're running this lab with about 20 or so people you've got all the day-to-day -day things to do and on top of that you've got to save the world <laughs> uh, and if you can have that done by friday then you can go home on saturday yeah. I think a better way of thinking it's it's the politicians' jobs to to save the world, and, and we're just a tool. So if they, you know, the, the more money they invest in science, the, the the better outcomes they'll probably get, provided they they put the right um, incentives in place. So is it also the onus should be on the general public too to inform themselves that they just don't sit back and be spoon fed, you know, little sugar coated bits of science that that you know as citizens in a complex world that we've all got to take some response we don't have to be able to mix up chemicals in a lab sure and, and we live in a democracy right so you know if, if people it's unfortunate but i think if people had greater appreciation of of what people do in research and, and why research is important um that would kind of filter up to the government and then you'd, you'd maybe get greater support and you see this some countries with like switzerland fun science you know considerably and, and they're a smaller country than, than australia and i think that's a reflection of the way science is perceived in some other countries yeah. um i mean it's a very hard job for politicians i mean you've got a limited amount of money what do you spend it on and that's really a tough question and this is not you know not something that, that i can judge but yeah i mean all right. Well, let's let, let's 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 move back to my aunts because they're they're still wandering around the backyard with a glum look on their faces, saying we really miss going into the shed. <laughs> uh, I wish Rod hadn't sprayed that uh, anti-colonesterase all over the place. And bad luck for him; he inhaled it all. Uh, one of the things your lab does is insect resistance, right? Yeah. So, tell me a bit about that work. So, what's happening is is. Um Insecticides, obviously, they, they, a lot of them are very effective and they enable us to kind of maintain a steady supply of, of inexpensive and high-quality food. The problem is that if we keep spraying them, insects can evolve resistance. So just, you know, everyone pretty much understands how evolution works, right? So you get mutations and things change and then if something's better, it will get selected for and have more progeny and, and, and it will evolve. So what's happening is, is that by... The spraying insecticides we're selecting for insects that are resistant against them so 100 insects 10 survive so so you know what, what could happen is that if you spray an entire population of insects with this insecticide you'll kill most of them but whatever insects have naturally occurring mutations that make them a little bit more resistant mm. survive so the next generation are the children of the more resistant flies so that generation as a whole is more resistant 
and then of that generation again the, the whole process so, so it's an iterative kind of process so every generation they can get progressively it's more sort of like a little chemical warfare in fact it's what plants and insects have been doing for yeah, millennia yeah, absolutely isn't it? Yeah. yeah yeah so how, how big a problem is anti or not antibiotic um insect resistance how big a problem is it i mean it, it it's it's a it's a very real problem i mean people get worried about um resistance to antibiotics Right, so so everyone talks about how if you know if, if bacteria keep getting more and more resistant to antibiotics, it's going to be a cataclysmic kind of event, and mm. we're going to be in big trouble. But if insects become resistant to insecticides, um, that could be an equally catastrophic event. So, I mean, plagues of locusts you hear about in you know stories from the Bible and stuff, and, and sounds pretty scary, but it's not something that really affects our lives. But it's 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 entirely possible. I mean, if if we didn't have insecticides, you know, a plague of locusts could decimate crops and everyone starves. I mean, it, it's a it's a real threat. So if insecticides stop working, we're in we're in big we, trouble. We could be yeah. well, especially okay. especially in Australia, we're such an agricultural country. I mean, we've I think the sheep blowfly is one of the the key examples um, out of our lab. I mean, as soon as you've got a threat to livestock or any sort of agricultural industry you're putting a lot of pressure on on people that you know the the agricultural community in australia particularly um have to deal with these things so it is it is a real life problem that, that well, we've and, got to and try you and talk solve. about feeding a growing population seven billion growing by nine thousand per hour net uh, as, as we speak so um, are there instances that uh, we know of where resistance is now occurring? Is there growing? Yeah, so one samples? thing we work on is the Australian sheep blowfly. So that's been sprayed for, for several decades with organophosphates like chlorpyrifos that you were working with in your shed. Um, and it's now it's now quite resistant to organophosphates. So people have to use different, different chemicals or, or spray more frequently. Um, and so we're looking at ways to try to kind of break this resistance or, or target the enzymes that's responsible for the resistance so, so that you know we can get the resistance back down um so what's what's the approach is it just to find an alternative or is there a strategy that say you can use to make the resistance less likely so both so it's similar to with um with uh antibiotic resistance with with bacteria so so one approach is just to find a different a different um, insecticide something that will work in a different way that they're not resistant to another approach would be to find a molecule that can like i say knock out the resistance mechanism so in this case for these flies they've evolved a, a new enzyme that can break down the insecticide before it can do its job mm-hmm. so if you can attack you can if you can inhibit that enzyme that they've evolved to break down the insecticide you can prevent the resistance so those are the two kind of approaches you can use to try to get around resistance okay so it's harder for the flyer to develop resistance if you do that sort of thing yeah yeah and, and the other thing is is and australia's got very very good management of insecticide use so, so they're quite good at, at um rotating insecticides it, it's that there's a lot of um regulations around this to try to make sure that insecticides that they that are used firstly are safe and, and secondly are effective so it often involves kind of rotating them or using one one season something else another season it's not it's not a um it's not open season out there okay so this is one of the main uh, outputs of your lab is you're working f- towards ways of producing these things yeah, 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 yeah absolutely so one of the main one of the main um goals that we have is to try to find ways to stop stop this resistance kind of evolving and, and right and so you can find it so what, what's the process you go through you, you say eleanor gives you give eleanor a beaker and you mix these i'm being a bit flippant here <laughs> so what we do what we have to do first is understand how the resistance is occurring so what we do for that is we look at the molecular structure of the enzyme or the protein that's involved in resistance and you're working with biologists it's a cross-disciplinary yeah we've got excellent collaborators at the csiro um and, and they've, they've done a lot of the biology and the genetics so what we'll do is look at the structure so to look at the structure these molecules are too small to see under a microscope um but you can f- 
make a crystal out of it. So the same way salt will crystallize, you can get proteins to crystallize. It's trickier, but it does happen. It drives some students up the wall. Quite a bit trickier. <laughs> I wish I wish it was salt. It's always salt. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it's it's yeah. Tricky is kind of a bit of an understatement, but you can make crystals out of proteins basically. And if you have a crystal of a protein, you can shoot it with an X-ray, and then the X-ray will get scattered in yep. different directions. And the way that the X-rays get scattered depends on the arrangement of the atoms in the molecule. Mm-hmm. So if you can look at the scattering pattern, you can then work out where all the atoms are. And then when you know where all the atoms are in space, you've got a three-dimensional s- structure of the molecule. So then you can understand how the insecticide would bind to it. Right. Okay, so then you can understand the molecular interaction, how they work, and that way you can kind of start to build a hypothesis as to if this is how it works, this is how we could stop it, or this is how we could change it, or this is how we could do something else. And then you can target its weak spot. Yeah. We might break to a yeah. track, Eleanor. Hey, yeah, we're talking about crystallography and the evolutionary arms race taking place in Rod's backyard shed here on Fuzzy Logic with Associate Professor Colin Jackson, myself, Eleanor, and Rod, the owner of the infamous shed. Uh, here's some Beirut for you on 2XX. That was No, No, No by Beirut. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XX, Canberra Community Radio. We're talking about chemical warfare against ants today uh, and, and some of the other science that goes along with it. Uh, my name's Eleanor. I've got Rod in the passenger seat today. And we've got Associate Professor Colin Jackson from the RSC, the Research School of Chemistry at ANU. Uh, and we're chatting about all the cool things that his lab does. And I think Rod's learning a heap about the horrible chemicals that live in your shed. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the alarming discovery that the uh, one I was spraying around my shed this morning is related to sarin. But the good news is it's not actually that dangerous in the quantities that I was uh using and uh so you just get over it stop being all angsty unnecessarily but i've got, I've got a question for you eleanor yeah uh, and for you colin as well um do you remember your dreams and trust me this has a chemical uh segue to our next topic i i am i am a professional dreamer i have i've been trying to train myself to lucid dream for about 10 years now and I'm not very good at it, but I remember my dreams incredibly vividly. And the other night I dreamt that I had a pet hedgehog and I woke up and I was really sad because it was cute and I loved it and it didn't exist. Um, that's just an insight into my life there. Uh, how about you? <laughs> I, 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 I'm a, almost a professional dream. I'm not so sure. Maybe you should explain the lucid dreams or the ones that you have some control over. You go, I know I'm dreaming and you control them to some extent, right? Yeah, you can sort of wake up partly and you kind of you kind of cotton on to these little cues that tell you that it's a dream. There are devices you can buy, actually, that you strap to your head and it's got little red LEDs that go over your eyelids. And when it detects that you're in your REM sleep where you're starting to dream, it will flash the little LEDs in your eyelids. So the idea is that you can be in your dream world and suddenly you see little red lights flashing and you realize that you can do whatever you like and run and wow, fly off really a cliff. Cool. That yeah, that's really cool. As long as we don't have one of those uh, mega internet companies monitoring what you're dreaming. <laughs> uh, what about you, Colin? My dreams are really boring. Like I dream I've left my keys in my car, then I go to my car and my keys won't be there and I realise it was a dream. <laughs> I have those too. It's kind of about as exciting as I have those too. Now they relate to a sort of angst. Now we're going to get to the chemistry of this in, the, in a moment. Trust me, there, there is a chemistry theme here. Now I interviewed on Fuzzy Logic a few years ago uh, Dr. Glenn Billsborough, who is a clinical psychologist and the question from our listener then was why do we dream? And the question in today's Ask Fuzzy in the Canberra Times is, why do we remember dreams and some and not others? Okay, now part of his answer, neurotransmitters. Chink, that's the connection, right? And what he's saying is that as you go through different phases of sleep, different uh, neurotransmitters are active in your brain. And so the ones that are related to uh, storing memories are not uh, around while you're in the dreaming mode and then as you wake up they they start to move into your brain and then you remember stuff so as you're on the verge of wake and sleep then they're, they're the ones that you tend to remember mm, that's pretty does cool that, does that make sense 
Yeah, that's that interesting. reasonable. Yep. Okay, so part of your research in the lab, Colin, is uh, neurotransmitters. And uh, tell me, so apart it, from dreaming... Well, it's, it's um, understanding neurotransmitters and how they work and, and how they're spatially distributed is, is very hard because you can't see them. So you can't see neurotransmitters under a microscope. You have to look at them indirectly using a variety of, of, of different techniques. So what we're doing is, is we're trying to, well, we're engineering biosensors so that we can actually image um, image neurotransmitters in, in real time. And so the idea is that a neurotransmitter is invisible, basically, because it's so small, it's a chemical. Um, if this binds to a protein and this protein undergoes a conformational change, and then you can tag that protein with a couple of other fluorescent molecules, the change in fluorescence, or color, basically, um, will allow you to see if the neurotransmitter is present or not. So this is without changing the function of the protein, I presume? Well, no, we change the function of the protein so that it binds to neurotransmitters. So it's all engineered But it doesn't entirely. interfere with the, the protein. I no, this is an exogenous protein. So this is a protein that's not already in our brains. This is something that we made. All right. It's entirely engineered to work as a sensor, just to basically detect the presence of the neurotransmitters mm -hmm. and so by doing this we can um we can actually see when the neurotransmitters are released under what stimuli and when they're taken up and when they're when one is present when's another one's absent etc etc so it's, it's a way to actually visualize where and, the neurotransmitters and, 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 and that way we can actually going. start to understand kind of in, in real time what's happening in our brains which is kind of one of the huge mysteries in oh. science you're talking about what don't we understand very well Neuroscience is an area that, that there's still a lot of a lot of secrets yes. to be discovered. Yeah. And, and yes. this hopefully will be a tool that people can use to help. Yes, we're talking about complexity, you know, that's that's where it really is. Now, give me a sense of the scale of a protein, uh, or maybe Eleanor, I'm thinking of something really big and complicated like the Death Star. Yeah. Is, and, and, and this little thing, that you, this tag that you put on the outside of it, it's like one of those little um, TIE fighters on the side. Is that That's, sort of roughly the scale that we're talking uh, about here? So the neurotransmitters might be about a tenth, twentieth the diameter of the protein. Yeah. yeah so they're not huge proteins, usually, okay. uh, the, the ones that we're using. Um, so that, there'd be thousands of atoms, whereas the... Um, the neurotransmitter would be tens of atoms. Okay, so, so it's not quite like, Death Star, TIE yeah, Star Maybe scale. Millennium Falcon to Death Star rather than TIE Fighter to Death Star. <laughs> okay. Kind of like a bike in a garage. Yeah. Right, okay. So then you can... And so in your lab, this is what you're doing. You're developing these um, optical sensors, as you call them. Is that what, the, is that yeah. what you're doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so what sort of application will this have? Well, so the idea is, is that we'll be able to use them to visualize what's happening under, um, under different stimulus in, in the brain. And, and that will actually help us hopefully understand the molecular basis of some of these neurological diseases that, that, that are causing more and more of a problem, so especially in Western societies like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So, so we'll be able to actually see why brain tissue in some ill people is is dysfunctional okay and hodgkinson's huntington's disease and those sorts of things huntington's yeah that's the term uh so if you're looking at so you're not actually doing the direct research on parkinson's but these are things that can be used yeah by so a lot of the stuff those. that we do is is kind of making tools that other people can use right yeah so we don't work with anything biological bigger than a bacterium so, so we, we really just work with with the chemicals but we you know, try to produce tools that other people can then use to. All right. So, do you get do like a dementia researcher come to you and say, "Look, we really want to tag the action of this protein"? Yes. Yeah, so, 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 so this work's funded by a, a, it's called the Human Frontiers and Science Project, and they try to kind of support research in new areas between different countries. It's a way to kind of get people in different countries working together and and kind of as a community to try to solve big problems. So, we're working with people in Germany and Austria on this program i said science is really an international effort now yeah absolutely i mean as, as the kind of world's got smaller it's, it's important to work with people from different countries and, and kind of find people that have complementary expertise to try to tackle 
big and, and kind of challenging problems. So these, these tags, do they come from uh, jellyfish or something like that? Yeah, that yeah. So they were found. There was a Nobel Prize for these. Uh, I forget which year. Fairly recently, within the last five years, I think. So there was a Nobel Prize that was given for for the discovery and, and engineering of these molecules. So they were found in in the in jellyfish uh, by a Japanese researcher. And the gene was cloned by an American researcher, and then a, um, a Chinese American researcher then did a lot of uh, really, really impressive engineering on these molecules to kind of make them not just interesting proteins in their own right, but like I said, an interesting kind of tool that you can attach to stuff as, as a tag or as a label, and then you can visualize what's happening under microscopes. And what, what sort of success have you had? Um, yeah, good. Well, we haven't. We're, the stuff that we're working on at the moment, we're, we're just getting ready to publish. Where we've made a sensor that, that binds a, an important neurotransmitter. And we've got some interesting data on that, and we, we published a paper last year, so we're, we're doing... Okay, now we, we talked about my, my shed a bit today, and uh, uh, Eleanor, you've got a column coming up next week on cyanide. I do, yes. I've written that's, a little that's tale. That's pretty exciting. So that's a chemical that uh, brings... Well, a, a real resonance to the, the mind of anybody. Just, just what's the story? Well, I think I think uh, people often sort of link cyanide with the Nazis um, on account of the very famous double suicide of uh, Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun. And I think it's a relatively common misconception that Hitler took a cyanide capsule, but he actually. Um, shot himself this is a very dark end to the show uh and his his new his new wife uh was the one who ingested the cyanide capsule so i think in the ask fuzzy uh the question is why why is cyanide not a good thing to eat why what is the mode of action of its toxicity um and it's it's all about proteins and enzymes exactly what we've been talking about today it's to do with very very strong interaction um, between a cyanide ion uh, and a particular now, enzyme. Eleanor, I remember in my science school lab there was a jar on, or a jar of vial or something on the top shelf, and it said something or other cyanide, maybe hydrogen cyanide. I can't remember. That's, yeah, that's a good and one. I remember looking up at that, thinking, I wonder what it smells like. <laughs> well, uh, it's funny you should ask. Uh, cyanide typically has a very bitter almond scent. So if you can sort of picture marzipan or, or ground almonds. That's the that's the telltale sign that there's some cyanide floating around, um, and it's also present in small quantities in the stones of different fruits, so apricots, um, apple seeds are one of the famous ones. Uh, people get worried when they swallow apple ah. pips that there's cyanide present, and they're going to suffer a horrible cardiac arrest as a result that, of an that apple. Sort of touches on uh, your work on uh, uh, pesticides. Do you think those compounds might be present in the seeds to deter insects from eating them it's uh, it's kind of a, a complex one because the so cyanide isn't actually present uh, in the seeds themselves but there is a compound that will produce the cyanide when it's been ingested so it potentially does have an evolutionary um, reason oh, for existing okay. yeah all right, now this, this taps into another Ask Fuzzy that we have in the pipeline, which will come in the week after yours. And uh, we've got a researcher who's looking at heat stress amongst firefighters, hmm. uh, Dr. Anthony Walker. And uh, we had an interesting chat with him. And one of the byproducts of a fire situation, especially a house, I think, is cyanide. So this is a great concern to people who are fighting fires and so on. Definitely. But, Yes, it's a hazard that they have to deal with on top of the heat stress that, that, that's on their body. So that's an Ask Fuzzy that we've got the week after next. And uh, I'm hoping to get uh, Dr. Walker onto the, uh, the program, I think he will. And we might get a firefighter at the same time, which would be interesting. And uh, mm. Colin, maybe you have a, a question that you'd like to ask a, a firefighter or a fire-related researcher to do with combustion. And if you do, you can, you can send me that. Right, I'll, I'll email it in. <laughs> email it in. And, of course, you can tweet us those sort of questions as you uh, think of them. Now, the other thing that we've got coming up in uh, our Ask Fuzzy column in a few weeks' time is... Uh, now, a reader has asked me about what happens when you tune a radio station off slightly. And I think they're talking about AM radio rather than FM because you know it goes off, you get the, the hiss. Go, oh, yeah, yep. yeah. And he's asking why the S sounds different. 
Mm. And uh, it's, it's actually quite a, a rich question because the background radiation noise, the sh- I think, is a byproduct of the Big Bang. Okay, yep. And Cosmic microwave background yeah. radiation. Back, yeah, that's one of our favorites radiation and uh, I didn't think to ask Dr. Charlie Lineweaver last week about that but uh, I'm sure he'll tell us some interesting stuff yeah definitely but the other part of this question relates to the human perception of sound mm. and there's a thing called the speech banana <laughs> yes you heard it here on fuzzy logic the speech banana and we talked about bananas by the way too didn't we yeah extension. bananas seem to come up quite often on this show well, the name, the name is not to do with the, the, uh, the eating the fruit, but the shape of a curve across the, an audiogram. Mm. And there's different parts of speech that are, are, you, uh, are dominant across a particular pitch, range mm. of pitch and volumes. So the S is a high-frequency sound, and you need to hear it at a certain volume to be able to hear it. And if you map out all the parts of speech, uh, then uh, you, can do, you end up with this shape called the speech banana. So the other part of that question is how we perceive speech. Wow. So it's, it's, it's a lot more than just a radio being slightly out of tune. It's, there's a lot going on. That, that's right. Lot, lots of interesting stuff to do. Uh, and it's interesting the way a simple question. Now, the other thing that I've coming up with is I've been writing my book and uh, sound, and I've been looking at building alarms and beeps. Okay. And are they actually a helpful safety device? Yes, I would say so. The number of times alarms have gone off in our building. Yeah, we have we, frequent alarms. We do set fire to the building a lot. <laughs> That's right. Well, because you just imagine you're on a building site, right? And the, the air is squawking, full of beeps. Everything is beeping at you, right? So how do you tell where it's coming from? How do you know that it's actually alarm? And uh, there's different ways of approaching that. So I think you just got to watch for other people running. I mean, if you if you hear a beep <laughs> and everyone evacuates, then probably follow them. Yeah, that's right. And uh, oh, I think we're done for time. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty much pretty much ready to wrap up. So it just remains to say uh, thank you so much to Associate Professor Colin Jackson for being with us today. 